Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today in the book of Colossians called The True Christian. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians 3, 5 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The New Life. we're going to be studying today begins with three words, which in the original Greek language is only one. And the word we read in English is to put to death. And I suppose another way of saying that is to kill. Now, of course, in homicide or in murder, someone has to kill someone. And in warfare, the same also occurs, but on a much larger scale. Put to death. It seems like an order that you give to a hitman or a soldier. Put the enemy to death gain complete victory, leaving them no opportunity to rise again. But we also know that sometimes the phrase put to death or kill can be used figuratively. You know, a businessman might be told to kill certain negotiations in a deal that effectively ends any possibility that the deal should go forward. But in Christian circles, that is truly Christian circles, we speak of putting to death unholy desires. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, before we begin our study, I need to raise an issue that if if you've been following this study, you, you will already have noticed. In Colossians 3, verse 3, we're told, you have died and your life is hidden in God. That is, our old lives, the life we lived before we came to know Christ, is dead. It was killed in our conversion. But now as we begin our study in Colossians 3, verse 5, a mere two verses later, we begin by reading the words, therefore, on the basis of what you've been taught about your conversion, put to death. And then it lists a number of vices. Unless we miss this, verse 7 will tell us that these are the vices in which we formerly walked, that is, before we came to know Christ. I hope you see the problem. You see, on the one hand, we're told we're dead. And then we're told because of that, we need to put to death that which we once had. And so natural to ask, well, which which one is it? Are we dead or are we not? Now, lest you think that Paul got mixed up here, go to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to begin to read in verses 1 and 2. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Sounds logical. If you're dead to sin, you can't be alive to sin. It has to be one or the other, right? But go further on down to verse 12, and there we read, Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Yeah, because you're dead to sin, don't you let sin gain the upper hand in your body and direct it. Now, how can that be? But we should be able to see that Paul regularly said, you're dead to sin. And in the very next breath, he would say, for that reason, you had better fight against sin with all your might. And the way to explain this is to use the language of already and not yet. Another way of saying it would be to say there's an overlap of two ages. The age of the coming kingdom of heaven has already invaded into the present realm, and yet for a time, this old age of sin and death remains. For a time, the new has come, and yet the old remains. And it's so in the life of every genuine believer. Look, the new has come. We've received a new heart, and thus we are already dead to this old evil world. And that's what's meant by being a genuine believer. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. My heart, the control center of my life, is now made alive by Christ. However, 
The old age of sin and death also remains. Every year my body gets one year older, and I find that I see the signs of death at work in me. You know, the veins in my legs are starting to look like road maps, and on a more serious note, the old dying age, this sinful age, still makes claims on my flesh. And because I've died to this world, I must therefore fight with all my might against this world. I seek the things that are above. I set my mind on the things that are above. And now I fight with all my might to put to death all that remains of this dead world and its desires. And that's the context. So let's read our passage. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now notice in our passage that we begin with the command to put to death five inner, sensual, flesh-like desires. Then with that, we get a warning to help us see just how serious this matter is. This isn't optional. This is a matter of our eternal salvation. And after that, we see a new set of sins. The second set of sins are six relational sins. And then after that, we have an image. The sins of the old age are like inappropriate clothing. We are to take them off and put on the new clothing of the believer. So let's start with a first set of vices or sins, five inner desires that come out of the old sensual nature. The first of the five is sexual immorality. And the Greek word for that is the word porneia. Now, that word is a general term speaking of all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Now, look, if you don't know it yet, the Christian faith has a unique sexual morality. Sex was created by God, but it's like fire. If you've got your fire in the furnace or in your fireplace, it will heat your home and keep you warm on a cold winter night. But if the fire burns anywhere else, it's going to burn your house to the ground, and sex is like that. God intended it to be a celebration of lifelong sacred love within marriage and also out of that environment to bring the next generation into the world. And those two reasons, the bond a husband and a wife have to one another for life, as well as out of this to bring children into the world, is the reason for sex. And for that reason, the Bible sees all other forms of sexual activity as a part of that age which has an entrenched rebellion against its creator. So put porneia to death, writes Paul. Kill it. Leave no room for it. Don't make jokes about it. Don't let the concept live in your imagination. Starve the desire until it lies famished on the ground, unable to respond. Now, the second sensual fleshly sin is impurity. Now, that word is also in the Greek, a word used primarily for sexual sins. It speaks about what's dirty and filthy. It's immoral uncleanness. In that sense, it often takes upon itself the idea of what occurs in the thought life. You remember that Jesus spoke about lust in the heart. As with all other acts of sexual sin, inner lusting after sin also must be put to death. 
Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off in the same way. All the things that cause inner impurity are to be removed. And that includes pornography, as well as the wearing of provocative clothing, as well as suggestive flirting, all these things, put them to death. Third, Paul uses the word passion. And that speaks of strong, physical, sexual desires that emanate from our body. And since this is the case, please see that impurity creates passion. Feed your mind on sensuality and your body will respond. Yeah, our minds lead, the bodies become ever more passionate. Spend all of your lifetime focusing on something and you develop overwhelming passion for it. Cut off the emphasis and your passion becomes manageable. Fourth, evil desire. And that means to strongly desire to have that which belongs to someone else. In this case, it can easily refer to desiring someone's wife or someone's husband. One author has said, when lust goes unchecked, a passion for what is forbidden arises. Habits are formed which feed on each other. Lust encourages passion and passion produces more lust. And fifth, Paul adds a word that's not necessarily sexual, but it is related to the desire. It's the word covetousness. Another way of translating that word is to simply call it greed, to desire to have. And here he adds an explanation. Covetousness or greed, he says, is idolatry. So why is that idolatry? Well, please notice the 10th commandment. It's often been pointed out there's a strong relationship between the first and the last commandment. The first is that we are to have no other gods, and the last is that we're not to pine after that which is not our own. Covetousness is replacing the one true God to whom our souls are meant to desire with desires that were never meant to captivate our souls. Whenever we desire anything more than the one true God, we have other gods and we're idolaters. Then having given this list of first sins, sins we're to fight against and kill, Paul next wants to reflect on just how serious this matter is. Because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Unholy sex destroys marriages and families and entire civilizations, and that can be demonstrated. But there's something more serious than that. It provokes God. And Paul is completely in line with Old Testament prophets who warned Israel repeatedly about their sins until eventually wrath descended and they were not spared. Keeping God Central summarizes the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The teaching of God's Word via radio broadcast, social media, print, and video resources is not just about data. We want the Bible truth to be known, the truth that leads to knowing a growing relationship with Jesus. Our mission, with your help, is to effectively and faithfully share the good news across Canada and beyond our borders. We're so encouraged by the response of listeners. One wrote, your show is a constant that provided an anchor in an otherwise upside down world. Through your show, I've learned so much more about Jesus, the Bible, and our faith. You know, we really can't do this without you. So please consider supporting this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift today. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Thank you. 
There are some who, upon hearing that the wrath of God comes because of sexual sins, are frankly shocked. When we hear of a scandal involving a religious leader, so many of us are focused on issues like the relationship between sex and power. Now, I'm not denying that relationship. I know it's there. But what I hear a great deal less of is that clearly we've put men in Christian leadership who are at the very least not interested in putting to death what belongs to the old sinful age. And at most, we have people in Christian leadership who labor in that position all the while they're under the wrath of God. They are, as it were, the walking dead awaiting judgment in the final day. But whether it's a Christian leader or someone who's not a Christian leader, in either case, the wrath of God awaits those who will not put these sins to death. And furthermore, Paul, in his instruction to the Colossians, reminds the believers in verse 7 that before their conversion, this is exactly how they lived. Again, we do well to remember that the ancient Greek and Roman world was an overwhelmingly sensualized and sexualized culture, very much like Western culture today. And so when Paul says, in these you two once walked, he says that they no doubt walked this way because after all, the culture dictated this. This was the way of life that was thought normal. And we have to see how radical is the call of Christian conversion. It's the call to abandon this world or to put it into terms that have been already used to abandon the culture that's dying, a culture that which is only a matter of time when God visits it in wrath. It's a culture already condemned. A great many people find this language, you know, too radical, too divisive. You know, we think it's too extreme, too condemning, too judgmental. But please understand, this is not my language. It's the language of the Bible, Colossians 3, 6, to be exact. And so if you are to be truly converted, we have to cease walking with what is condemned and put it off. How serious then is the call to repent of sensual and sexual sins? Apparently, It's a matter of life and death, of mercy or condemnation. You want to flee this stuff, for this stuff, if you cling to it, will eternally condemn you. And someone might say, does that mean perfection? Of course not. But it does mean we count ourselves dead to it, and for that reason, we declare warfare on this stuff, not acceptance of this stuff. You might have sinned in this regard, but God offers wonderful mercy. It's the mercy of repentance. And also he offers the mercy of the battle. See, we may fail, but we will not hide our sin, nor will we be comfortable with it. We will fight against it until it lies dead on the battlefield. Is there hope for the person who's constantly falling into this sin? Yes, there's hope. Repent. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you and equip you. Yeah, set your mind on things above, not on things that are corrupt. Yeah, you can be equipped to fight and not lie down in the filth. There is great hope. But should you simply say, Let, this is how I am, and, and why can't I be a Christian and continue to live this way? Understand that that attitude puts you under the expectation, not of mercy, but of wrath. Please, my dear listener, take this scripture very seriously. In that way, there's great hope for you, great hope indeed. But lest we think that sensuality is the only sin, it's not. And Paul now leads us to a second list of vices or sins, and this second list is relational, or to put it another way, condemns aggressive abuse of one another. And there are six sins here, and let's go through all six of them. The first is anger, and anger in and of itself is not sin, because Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry, but don't sin. 
Sinful anger is the kind of anger that's furious with someone in such a way that it utterly rejects the other. The second sin is wrath. Now, we've read about God's wrath, but God's wrath is based on justice. The word for wrath here is a different one. It's the word that includes outbursts, either abusive or threatening words, or an attempt to belittle and intimidate. The third sin is malice, and malice is a feeling of hostility towards someone. It carries with it the desire to harm. You know, in my experience, I've seen people who carry considerable malice, but who can also smile and can be polite. But they are able to inflict serious physical, financial, emotional, or relational damage when it suits them. Malice settles into the human heart towards someone else. It hates intensely and seeks the undoing of the other. The fourth is slander, and this one is very effective. Jesus, our Savior, was slandered by the Jewish religious leaders, and it was their repeated slander that allowed them to nail him to the cross. So what slander is to speak against someone in such a way so as to harm their reputation. And interestingly enough, the person doing the slander often feels justified in doing it. It's true, they say, and in a great many instances, the slanderer actually believes his own slander and feels justified in it. But it's always sin to harm the reputation of the other. What's permitted of us, you know, and here I'm referring to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, is that we go to that person, and if that doesn't work, we involve the church so that there's an objective way of evaluating a charge. Slander wants no such thing. Slander is content to continue to allow one person to carry on speaking evil against the other. And interestingly enough, many countries have laws which permit the one being slandered to sue the other for damages. And in such cases, the person being slandered doesn't have to prove they're innocent. Indeed, it's the other way around. The person slandering has to objectively prove that what they said was true, and most people are unable to do that. The fifth sin is obscene talk. It's vulgar talk, talk filled with either sexual references or laced with crude language. And then to sum it up, Paul adds sixth, do not lie to one another. So let's be clear. A lie is any deliberate attempt to deceive. And I put it that way because every once in a while, someone will say that what they've said is technically true. All of us know that there are ways that we can speak, you know, which remains technically correct, but is intended to give the wrong impression. See, that being said, Christian people are known to be truth tellers. We tell the truth when we recount events. We tell the truth in all situations, even if it makes us look less than ideal. We think it a sin to lie to one another. Very well, Paul has given us two lists. The first, what we might call the sins of the sexual self. The second is the sins of the relational self. And in each case, these sins reflect the second table of the law, the laws that teach us how to love one another. By giving us a long list of these kinds of sins, Paul tells us that we've died to a former way of interacting with others, and instead we've been instructed to love others as Christ has loved us. So let's now come to the matter of clothing, or the matter of the image of clothing. All of us know that we wear clothing in keeping with the situation we find ourselves. You know, no one wears a tuxedo when manuring out an animal barn. No one wears rubber boots and coveralls to a wedding banquet. Some sports franchises even dictate the kind of clothing their athletes are to wear during an interview or when arriving at a game. Clothing, we're told, makes the man or the woman. It tells us what we do, who we are, and how we want to be seen. 
Having spoken of the vices of the former way of life, having spoken of being dead to this world, having spoken of engaging in warfare against the vices of our former way of life, Paul now defines the old vices or the kind of clothing we are to discard and the new life or the new clothing that's to be worn. Look at it, verses 9 to 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The key phrase here is the phrase put off and the word put on. And what's fascinating is that command put off and put on is in the errorist tense, which is a punctiliar tense. And that means Paul believes this activity has already been done at some specific point in time in the past. No doubt that point in time was conversion. At conversion, we appeared before our Savior. We took off the clothing that belonged to this world and that was destined to pass away. We said, we don't need that clothing anymore. We don't live in this world. We've put on the new clothing of Christ. This is how we want to be seen. It marks our identity. And Paul says, that is what actually happened when you first believe. And then Paul adds one more thought. It's found in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, you know, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So when Paul says the words, here there is, the word here means among those who are dead to this world and alive to Christ, here among us, there is a new culture that has developed. Here it is. What is here? Well, first, all the divisions that previously marked the human race don't mark the people of God. Greek or Jew is hardly a matter of consequence. Educated or uneducated doesn't matter. Christ, having died with him and raised with him, now that truly, truly matters. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, and this, I don't know, this is a strange question in some respects, but do we as believers today make too much of the sexual liberties being pursued in our culture? Um, well, you know, in some ways, if we do so at the expense of everything else, well, certainly that's not correct. But I'm going to say this. It has become and it has become the, the central issue in our culture's way of thinking. And so because the sexual morality of our culture is so different than the sexual morality of believers, it becomes necessary for us to make that distinction and especially for the next generation to make clear what it is we think about sexuality, why we think that way, and what purity looks like. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Are you searching for that little special gift or stocking stuffer for the kids this Christmas season? Well, you're in for a treat because our friends at Laugh Again have just the thing, Jake and the Christmas Surprise. It's a new children's booklet filled with hilarious childhood Christmas moments that'll have your kiddos in stitches and maybe you too. It's got full color illustrations, reflection questions, and Bible verses to spark conversations about the true meaning of Christmas. It's not just a gift, it's an opportunity to draw your family together and bring you all closer to Jesus. This special resource is easy on the Christmas budget because it's free this month. 
Choose between this or our Christmas devotional, Quiet Spaces for Christmas, at backtothebible.ca. Choose one of them as your gift, and if you'd like the other, it's available for purchase. May this coming Christmas be a season of joy for the entire family.